chapter. So John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. And we'll, we'll cover this in, uh, in, in parts and pieces as we, as we go through it. Um, let's start out. Man, I got something wrong there bad. Um, yeah. This was a hectic week, I can tell you that. 16 through 22. Yeah, I mean, that should say 16 through 22, not 24 through 22. Okay. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is still speaking. He says this, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and then you will see me. And so some of his disciples said to one another, <laughs> what, is, what is he saying? <laughs> I, I always make that's funny to me, because you can just see them looking at each other thinking, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. So one of them says to the other, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you'll not see me, and then again a little while you'll see me because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and that joy no one will take away from you. So let's, we're, we're at the end of chapter 16, and Jesus is, this is the night of his betrayal, right? They've, they've left at some point, they've left the upper room, uh, where, I'm not sorry, they, they, they left where they had their last supper, and they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they more than likely are already there as Jesus is speaking these words, and, and he keeps telling them, I'm leaving. Right? He's been saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. And he's trying to comfort them so they'll know. And he said, I'm telling you these things before they happen so when they do happen, you, you, know, you won't freak out, basically is what he's saying. That you'll, have, you'll have peace. And in fact, he uses another analogy here, that of a woman giving birth, to drive it home one more time. Listen, you're going to hurt for a little while. It's going to be bad for a little while. You're going to have sorrow for a little while but it's just for a while. It's just for a time. It's not permanent. There's coming a joy that, that no one can ever take away from you. Now, Jesus at the end here, after he's, uh, he, he said that, he's going to turn and begin to talk about prayer one more time. Okay? And uh, now he's already talked about prayer twice in the book of John, and we've already covered this. Uh, the first time, if you'll remember, was in John 14 verses 13 to 14, where Jesus told the disciples, Whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we, and we learned a couple things back when we went through John 14 about prayer. First, we are taught to pray in whose name? Jesus. In Jesus' name. That's right. And the reason that we pray in His name and not our own the reason we come to the Father praying in the name of Jesus is because we have no right, in our own self, we have no right to anything, do we? It's only in Him. It's only in our standing in the Son um, and what He has done for us. It's only there that God finds us acceptable. So when we pray, we always, in a sense, are reminding the Father 
listen, you know, I'm asking this, but I'm asking this because of who I am in Jesus. Right? That's, that's kind of what you're, you're... And by the way, it's not so much reminding the Father sometimes as it is reminding who? Uh, yourself. You know, it's, it's easy to come to God and just think, you know, God, you just, I'm a good person, you owe me anything. Praying in His name is almost a reminder to ourselves. He don't, he don't owe you anything. The only thing, the only reason we, we get anything good from Him or what we ask from Him is because of who we are in His Son. So we are accepted in God's presence only because of Christ. We only come to God through Christ. He is our mediator. And that's true for salvation, but it's also true for supplication or for prayer. Again, we come to God. The only way we get to God is through our mediator, through our advocate, which is Jesus Christ, right? But at the same time, the only reason we get anything from God is, again, because of Jesus Christ, because He's our mediator. Um, and the second thing that Jesus does in that first prayer, uh, the first thing time that He taught about prayer, is He connects our praying with the glory of God. Okay, um, Remember what He said there in John 14, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, so that what? The Father can be glorified in the Son. So what He does is He connects prayer. In fact, what he's saying is that the aim of all prayer is that God the giver might be glorified in Jesus the mediator. So he puts prayer in a, in a God context, right? It ain't about me. It's not about what I want, what I think, what I need. At the end of the day, it's all about how does this glorify God? Is it his will? Does it put a, a, a light on him? Does it show him the way that he wants to be shown? Now notice the first word there, Jesus says whatever, right? Now what does whatever mean? Whatever. But notice he doesn't qualify it, does he? Well, in a sense, he does qualify it. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it so that, and then he, that's the qualification, so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. So when we say whatever, I guess, I don't know if I, yeah. So here's my question. Does whatever really mean whatever? No. 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 We can, can we ask anything and get it? No. no. Give me some examples of something I, I, that he's not going to answer. So, so, so we know it's, you're saying it's not anything. So give me an example of something I could pray about that he will not. He's, he's not. If you ask with wrong motives. Okay, so give me an example. Right. You just want something to, for yourself okay. to be able to enjoy. Right. So Debbie says, Lord, I want to win the lottery. Out of anything else out of his will. Okay, anything out of his will. Well, give me some examples. Maybe you're praying for someone to be injured, hurt. There you go. Okay. You know, I don't like that person. Kill him. God, will you kill him in Jesus' name? Is that So is that whatever? I don't think so, right? Um, what if what if you're in a business? What if you're in a business and and your competitor and you say, Lord, I just want you to put them out of business, so that my business will do better. Is that whatever? Does he say, okay, you know, it's whatever. I got to do it, right? Um, I, I mean, the point is, is this? That's a question we all wonder about. What does whatever mean? But you can't make it absolute. There's no way it can be absolute, right? Um, because if we make it absolute, then, then we deny that the glory of God is the object of our prayer, 
right? Because we can all think of prayers that don't glorify God, right? In fact, we can think of prayers where if God answered them, he would be dishonored, would he not? Um, What if I said, God, please make me more important than yourself? What if I said, God, please wipe out all the Jewish people, all the white people, all the black people, all the Asian people? Does that glorify God? I mean, of course it doesn't. What if I said, God, please make pornography a godly thing so I can look at it? I mean, he's not, is he going to answer any of those? Of course he is. None of those have anything to do with his glory. So whatever is not absolute. There's no way it's absolute. We can't ever think that it's absolute. It's qualified by the fact that whatever you ask, that will bring glory to God. That's the qualification for, for whatever. So again, when Jesus says whatever you ask, the whatever is qualified by the end of the verse that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Prayer exists like everything else in this world to show that God is supremely glorious. Therefore, any prayer that does not imply hallowed be thy name as the main desire has no claim on that verse. Um, Now, the second time Jesus spoke about prayer was in John 15. And again, we covered this a few weeks ago, verses 7 through 8. He said this, if, so is there a qualification here? Of course there is. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here the qualification is pretty explicit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want. Ask whatever you will. And uh, do that and your prayers are going to be heard. And, and again, keep in mind, this is not... So, so what's the qualification here? Abiding. Not only are we abiding in Him, but what? His words are abiding in us. Now, when I say His words abide in us, what does that? What do I mean by that? Does that mean that I just I, I know the Bible? What does it mean? It means you live the Bible. It means you, you know. I, I said this before. I went to college and I took a a, a class, and the the professor knew more of the Bible than I did. He was a professor of New Testament. He knew, he knew the Bible better than I did. He wasn't anywhere close to being a Christian. I mean, he was so far away from being a Christian, it wasn't even funny. But he knew the Bible better. Now, it's not about head knowledge, right? It's about, it's about being inside of you. It's about, it's about it ruling you. That means every decision you make is, what does the Bible say about this thing? What, how, how do I best glorify God? Um, and I almost got off track here. Cause I, hold on just a second. <laughs> I almost went off. Let me get back where I need to go. Okay. Um, so here the qualification is pretty explicit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, do that and your prayers are heard. But keep in mind, this is not an all or nothing statement. But, but it's really a matter of degrees. In other words, no one is ever so completely full of the word that they are perfectly in line with God's will. Okay, there was one man that did that. Anybody know his name? Jesus. Jesus. He was perfectly in line with God's will. He knew when he prayed, he prayed God's will, didn't he? Because that's so every he was so in line with the, the word abided him so perfectly that when he prayed, he always prayed God's will. Therefore, his prayers were always answered because he was praying God's will. We're not like that, are we? 
See, that's where we struggle. Is this God's will? Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we... So it's always... So it comes down to this. The more or less that you're in tune with God's word, the more or less in tune you'll be with God's will when you pray. Okay? Sometimes you're more. Sometimes you're less. Some people are... You know... But the more or less you're in tune with God's word, it's abiding in you. You know His will the more in tune you're going to be with His will when you, when you pray. Okay? Um, now, as you read Jesus' statements concerning prayer, you can't help but come away with an image that prayer is more like a wartime walkie-talkie and not a domestic intercom. It, prayer is all about advancing the mission. It's not calling the butler up to the second floor to turn down the thermostat. Right? I mean, you can look at prayer two ways. If it's just an intercom in your house that you call and say, I need, I need a glass of water. I need more money. I need a new car. I need the air turned down. I, everybody with me? If, if that's what prayer's like, that's not, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is more, more like a walkie-talkie, right? That you're in the middle of a war and you're calling in help. Everybody with me? So it's, it, you know, it's really how you look at it. Look at, look at the Lord's Prayer and you'll see this. This is the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now look at the order. Number one is what? God's glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed honor, glory to your name. That's number one, right? That's where prayer starts. Look at number two. It's, your, it's, it's what? It's all about His will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, His glory, His will, and what comes last? Our needs. Right? Okay? I mean, so when He says this is the way you pray, number one, it's all about His glory. Number two, it's all about his will. Number three, last, it's about your needs. He understands we have needs, by the way, right? He understands we need bread, we need shelter, we need clothing. What did David say? I was young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. God always takes care of us. First and foremost, his glory and his will. Okay? So that's what prayer is, is all about. So Jesus says, that our prayers get answered in proportion to the way the Word of Christ is shaping our request according to God's will. Everybody see that? Let me say that again. Our prayers get answered in proportion to the way that the Word of God is shaping our request according to God's will. He also says that prayer exists for the glory of God, like we said, implying that prayer is more like a wartime walkie-talkie than it is just some kind of household intercom. So all requests serve the mission or the thing just malfunctions in our hand. Now, today, I said all that because today Jesus is going to talk for the third and final time about prayer. And we find this in verses 23 to 27. He says, in that day, and he's talking about the day when you see me again, right? You will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father... In my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is there's a change coming. Now, for three years, what have they been doing for three years? When they needed something, what did they do? They went to Jesus, right? For three years, they've been walking with him. And, and when they needed something, who'd they go to? Went to him. When they had a question about something, who'd they go to? They went to Jesus. It was all about Jesus. It was all about Jesus. Um, now, what's, that's why he says, verse 24, until now, you've not, asked, you've not asked the Father anything in my name. You've just been asking me because I've been here with you. But I'm going away. I'm not going to be here anymore. So he says, now, he says, now he's talking about something's about to change. You're going to have to start talking to the Father and asking the Father and doing it in my name because I won't be here uh, anymore. Now, everything that we said previously about whatever and the glory of God and prayer being like a, walk, a, a wartime walkie-talkie, those all apply, they, those all still apply, right? Okay, so uh, only here, Jesus adds one more thing and he says this, that God answers prayer so that your joy may be full. Now, here's my question. Previously, Jesus said that prayer is all about God getting the glory, right? But now he says, oh yeah, by the way, he's also going to answer your prayer so that your joy may be full. So think about what that he's saying. Prayer is so that God will get the glory, but prayer is also that your joy will be full. Now, here's my question. How do those two fit together? How do those two tie together? Somebody think about that for a second. If prayer is all about the glory of God, but at the same time it's supposed to bring me joy, real joy. Because God wants good things for us. Okay, God wants good things for us. But let me, so let's think about this for a second. I come to Jesus and I'm sick. I got something wrong with him. I just got a bad diagnosis from the doctor. And I say, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm scared to death. I, this is going to be a mess. I don't want to go through this. Take it away from me. Now, would taking it away from me be a good thing for me? Yeah, it'd be great. I want it gone. <laughs> but he decides, no, can't, I, I can't do that. I need you to go through this. There's some things I need to work out in you. You got some stuff in you that needs to come out. There's some people around you that need to learn from you as you go through this. As he's got these plans, right? So he says, I'm not going to do it. You need to, go, you need to go through this. Now, according to Jesus, that should, he's answered. In other words, I've prayed, he's answered, not the way I wanted, but my joy, should it be full or should it be? It should be full. It should be full, right? If you consider that joy is uh, almost a byproduct of the level of intimacy that we have with God in our relationship, and you know, in in praying, and even in the scenario that you were just describing, you know, the confidence that we can have is that He is going to go through it with us, regardless of what it is. Okay. You know, and so therefore we've got a strong basis for joy. I mean. How much better could life be than having the creator of the universe with us? Okay. Somebody else? I think it's really, 
see him and know him more truly, and that gives us uh, more trust in him, and that leads to more joy for yeah. us, having that confidence in him. Yeah. And you would agree, most of us, we, we mistake, we, we, we mistake real joy. Real joy is not based on circumstances, mm-hmm. right? That's not real joy. Uh, happiness is based on circumstances. You know, I mean, if, if, the, if, if the doctor came back and you did your little x-ray and the doctor came back and said, it's, it's all gone, we don't know, it was a misdiagnosis, whatever, you'd be happy for about two or three days, and guess what? The fourth day, something else would happen and bring you right back down. Mm-hmm. It don't last, that doesn't last. Real joy isn't based on what the doctor says or what anybody says or does. Real joy is, is kind of like Ron said, real joy is based on him and our relationship with him. And so our joy should be tied to him in, 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 in not only in our relationship, but his will. Did you want to say something? Yes, sir. Yeah. So I, I think you're all right. I, I they see they fit together because a true Christian, and, and this is what I was trying to say, will always find joy, real joy, in seeing God's glory and in the manifestation of that glory for others to see. Okay, it's all about Him, and you know, man, when He saved us, He died for me, and for He saved me, and all He's done. I want to see Him lifted up. I want to see him glorified, right? My real joy. And, and by the way, this is probably one of the greatest and, um, and the most overlooked truths in the Christian life. That God is most, John Piper says, this is one of his statements. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Okay? He is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Go back to what Ron just said. You, you get that diagnosis from the doctor, right? And you've prayed and prayed and prayed. But if you are so satisfied in him that, it, that you're saying, okay, Lord, you're with me, and if this is your will, I'll go through it. If you're that satisfied, do you know how much God is glorified by that? Right? I've said it a million times. I know certain people that have gone through things and walked through things, and they've walked through it, and they've never wavered. And I look at the, I look at those people and the things they've gone through, and they just glorified God like crazy when they did it. Right? It wasn't the person. And I don't look at the person. That person might have been healed, or that person. I look at that person who walked through that thing, and they never wavered. They said, "I'm going to trust God." Is a Job that said, "Though he slay me, I'm gonna still trust him." That glorifies God. I mean, that that shining a light says that He's worthy. It's not about me. It's not about what I think, what I need, what I want, what I know. It's all about Him. And the, and you're saying, "I'm not. I'm gonna trust Him. I'm gonna put my faith in Him, no matter what." Let me tell you, that is shining a spotlight on Jesus Christ. And I've seen people do that in their lives. <clears throat> and so, so the point is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Does anybody know what hedonism is? Anybody heard the word hedonism? You probably heard it. Anybody know what it is? You want to take a guess? Not heathenism. <laughs> yeah, we're all, we all know what heathenism is. We look at it in the mirror just about every day. Right, we live with it, so we know what heathenism is. 
Um, you actually, whether you know it or not, you live with hedonism every day when you look in the mirror as well. Hedonism is the philosophy or the theory that pleasure uh, in the sense of the satisfying of your desires is the highest good and the proper aim of life. In other words, a hedonist says, if you ask a hedonist, what's life all about? A hedonist would say, you know what? Life is short. There is no God. Just get as much pleasure out of it as you can. That's, that's what a hedonist is. Just get pleasure out of life. That's all there is to it. You know, if, if, uh, you, know, if you want to do something and it makes you feel good, do it. Because that's, that's all life's about. Um, so, so hedonism is the, is the idea that all people have the right to do everything in their power to achieve the greatest amount of pleasure possible to them, assuming their actions do not infringe on the rights of others. In other words, you can't, you, you know, they wouldn't say you can rape or steal or anything like that to get what you want. But within means, if it feels good, do it. Because this is all there is. Okay, that's what hedonism is. Now, but when you think about it, isn't it true that all human beings seek the satisfaction of their desires? Don't we all? I mean, don't every choice we make every day, we go back to chocolate or vanilla? You choose one or the other, why? Because you like one more than the other. You don't just sit there and think, you know what, I like them both. You like one more than the other, most likely. Um, or strawberry or whatever the case may be. You make choices every single day because it satisfies what you want. Every human being does that. That's the point of your example prayer a while ago. We all do that. We all do that. We, we don't want to be sick, so therefore we pray on the basis of our desire to be <laughs> well or That's right. pain-free or whatever. We all do it. It, it, and so when you think about hedonism and you say that, you, you explain it, everybody looks and says, well, geez, that's not me. Yeah, it is. It is you. It's everybody for the most part. We all, that's why we choose things. See, we all seek, let, let's face it, we all want to be happy, do we not? Don't we all want to be content? Don't we all want to be fulfilled? By the way, that doesn't change when you get saved. When you get saved, you still want to be happy. You still want to be content. You still want to be fulfilled. You still make decisions every day based on your desires. Do we not? Okay. See, and in fact, God never takes that away from you. He leaves that in us because that's part of being human. Right? He doesn't take that away from us. Even as, as Christians, we still want that. What changes is the object of our desires. What changes is what will make us happy. What will make us content. What will make us fulfilled. Does everybody see that? He doesn't change what's in you to want it. He changes the object of what you want. Okay? Um, as Christians, we realize that for the first time, these blinders are lifted off of us. And we realize that, that those things, contentment, happiness, fulfillment, only come when we have a life that first and foremost glorifies God. Okay? And again, that's why it goes back to what Piper said. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied, when He becomes what we want more than anything else, when He becomes our pleasure. Does everybody see that? When He becomes that desire, when we realize He's the one that makes me content, He's the one that fulfills me, He's the one that makes me happy, not being healed, not having more money, not winning the lottery, Him. When we reach that point in our life, 
That's when God is most glorified in us. So, so again, keep in mind, remember what we started talking about was joy. What happens is our joy is no longer in winning the lottery, not being healed, not in having a new car, not in getting a good diagnosis. Our joy moves, changes over and becomes, it's all found in Him. So the more He's glorified, the more happier we should be, the more content we should be, the more fulfilled we, we should, should be. We realize that God Himself most fully realized, revealed in His Son Jesus is the supreme value in the universe. Look at what Philippians 1.20, what Paul said, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or when death. What was His main purpose in life here? That Christ will be honored. It didn't matter to Him if it was in life or in death. His thing, what brings him joy? What was his desire? What did he want more than anything else? That Christ would be honored. That everything for him changed, right? It was all about, all about God. We realize as Christians that honoring God, glorifying him, is the greatest goal for all of life because it is the goal of the creation of the universe. It's why the universe was created. Romans eleven thirty six: from him, through him, to him are all things. And by the way, who is one of those all things? Us. We were, created, we were created from Him, we're created through Him, and we're created to Him for His glory. To, that's our purpose. You want to be happy and content and satisfied and know what life, live life to the fullest abundantly? Then, then fulfill what you were created for, which is to glorify and honor God. You do that, and, and you'll know life like you've never known it before. But that's what you were made for. Uh, we were created to glorify Him. Therefore, we only find contentment, fulfillment, and joy in doing that. Listen to how the psalmist put it in Psalms uh, 16, 8 through 9. I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, I have made Him my focus, my priority, my pursuit, my pleasure. It's Him. I've put Him before me. Because He's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now watch what happens. What did he do in his life? Well, who did he put first? What's his desire? God. And watch what he says. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh is secure. You want happiness? You want joy? You want contentment? You want fulfillment? Where do you find it? Putting him first. I've set the Lord first. Now I'm glad. Now I'm happy. Now I'm content. Now I'm fulfilled. See, that's where it always starts and ends for a Christian. That's why the Bible continuously commands us to find our joy in Him. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all, you, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Not in circumstances. Not in your health, not in money, not in things, but in Him. Put Him first and foremost. Just think about it. What a person finds most joy in is what they will worship. Let me say that again. Think about a person's life. What you find the most joy in in your life, you will make a God out of it. If it's sports... 
If you, there are people I know that they, they find the most joy in their life out of sports and they will make a God out of it. They'll make a God out of it. If you find it in money, if money bring, making money brings you joy, you'll make a God out of that. If leisure brings you the most joy, you'll, you'll make a God out of leisure. Okay, whatever you find the most joy in, that's what you will worship. That's why joy in God is the heart of worship. Valuing and treasuring and cherishing and enjoying and being satisfied in God is the truest form of worship. It's the truest form of glorifying Him. You understand, if you really love sports, or you really love leisure, or you really love shopping, or you really love money, it's what you really love, and then you, 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 you step away from that on a Sunday morning and walk in that church and raise your hands, is that the truest form of worship? That's nothing. That's, that's, no, that's just outside stuff. When you walk in that church on Sunday morning and what you really love more than anything else is Him, that's true worship. Are you with me? It's not about how loud you sing, how high you raise your hands, how reverent you are. It's about what's in your heart, who you really love, what's really first and foremost. So when we are most satisfied in Him, when He is first and foremost in our life, that is when God is most glorified. That is when God is most, most worshipped. And when you do this, by the way, the benefits flow throughout your life. I'll give you one example. Seeking your joy in God severs the root of sin. I mean, just think about this for a second. Sin, we talked about this back when we went through Romans. Sin only has power because of the promises that it makes. You see, sin promises you, if you do this, you'll be happy. If you do this, you'll be fulfilled. Right? Right? That, that man, he ain't making you happy. He's not making you happy. Just, just leave him. If you leave him, you'll be happy. Right? See, see the devil always makes promises of this is what's going to happen if you do this thing. You're going to be happy. You're going to be content. You're going to be fulfilled. Right? Um, by the way, nobody sins out of duty. Oh, jeez. I'm just going to go out today and sin. I don't want to do it. You know? I don't want to do it, but I got to do it. You know, I just, it's just my duty to do it. Nobody does that. You sin because sin promises you something. Right? When that person does something to you and that thought comes, I'm going to get them back. Right? And, and you go to get them back. You gossip about them. You, you do something to undermine them. Why do you do that? Because something's sitting in your mind saying, if you'll do this, you'll feel better. Right? If you'll make them hurt the way you hurt, it'll make you feel better. Right? And then, the, and then of course, the Bible sits there, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I'll repay. I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. But see, that the, the thing is, we, 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 we sin because of the promises that it's going to make us feel something. Happiness, contentment, full fulfillment. We believe, we sin because we believe those promises of sin. So the only way to defeat the power of sin's promise is with, is with the power of something superior. Like I just said, you'll, you'll, this will happen all the time in your life. You'll feel that thought, you need to do this. You need to get back at that person, right? And then the Holy Spirit will just bring that scripture up. The promise, and by the way, that scripture is a promise. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll repay it. And so you, you have a choice, like every one of us. 
do I, do I believe sin? Do I believe what it's telling me? That if I just gossip about this person or undermine this person, I'll get them back? Or do I believe God? Right? It, it's constant. Everywhere, if you're a Christian, this is, this is, this is constant. See, I need this, the power of a superior promise so that I don't give in to the promise of sin. Right? Um, for example, how does the Bible free us from the love of money and the sin of anxiety and greed? Look at Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Now, don't forget this part for a second. Paul, uh, the writer says, keep your life free. Don't be greedy. Don't love money. Okay? Be content with what you have. Okay, why? Why should I do that? Why would I be content? Well, now he says you. Because he has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Right? See what he's doing? He's pointing you from a promise of sin to the promise of the Father. Right? So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not fear. Right? What can man do to me? He's always going to be there for me. He's always going to protect me. He's always going to provide for me. See, you sever the root of sin with a promise, with a superior promise. Okay? And so that's, again, putting God first. We are freed from the sin of loving money by the pursuit of a contentment in God, and that contentment is rooted in a superior promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the secret of sanctification, the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, I love God more than I love money. I love God more than I love whatever that thing is, right? I expel that from my life because I've replaced it with something that I love more, something that I find more joy in, something that I worship more than, than that. And the implications go on and on, but it all starts with the truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with Him. This is our lifelong vocation. And by the way, since God is sovereign, He guarantees that you will have that joy Look what Jesus said in John 16, 22. You got sorrow now, but I'll see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And that joy, no one will ever take from you. And trust me, when they saw him again and they saw who he was and they saw what they had, nothing ever took that from them again. Not beatings, not whippings, not torture, not martyrdom, not poverty, nothing could ever take that uh, away from them. So in all of those three texts, Jesus is calling us to joyful, Christ-dependent, God-glorifying prayer. But the hard truth is that most American Christians, we don't pray very much. Um, we pray at meals. We whisper prayers before we get on a plane or before a tough meeting. Some, some may pray briefly as we crawl into bed, but very few set aside times to pray alone, and fewer still think it's worth it to meet with others to pray. But God has given us prayer as a means of grace. Listen, if we don't eat, we what? Starve. If we don't drink, we get dehydrated. If we don't exercise a muscle, it atrophies. If we don't breathe, we suffocate. Just as there are physical means to sustaining life, there are spiritual means to sustaining spiritual life. And one of those means is prayer. You pray if you want to grow stronger in your spiritual life. If you don't pray, you will grow weaker. That's just all it is to it. If you don't pray, you will grow, grow weaker. By the way, now here's the last thing. 
Here's an easy question. When do we pray the least and when do we pray the most? There you go. Is that true? Boy, when things are good, we just don't really have no reason to pray, do we? When things are bad, that's when we hit our knees. Well, there's a song that says prayer is one phone call away. That's true. You get one phone call and boom, you're on your knees. It can change in the next minute, the next hour, and the next day. I want you to read, a, read with me this scripture. This is Zechariah 13, 8 through 9. I want you to read this. It says this, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds, he's talking about Israel, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. And this, I want you to notice what's happening in this passage here. There's a, Israel's going through a situation here and, and, and God says two-thirds of the people are going to die. I mean, that's a lot of people. Two-thirds of them are going to be cut off and perish. They're going to die. But I'm going to save one-third of them. Okay, so that's the first thing uh, that he's going to do. And you see that in verse 8. And then he says, I'm going to take that one-third of them, this faithful, weak, imperfect, they don't pray the way they should, they don't have any discipline in prayer, they don't have any, they're not desperate for me, they're not looking for me, uh, they're not hungry for me. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to make them hungry for me. Okay, I'm going to make them look to me. So what is God's remedy? What's his school of prayer? Watch what he says. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. In other words, what do you think he's going to do? How's he going to test them? They're going to, have some they're going to go through some bad times. That's exactly right. I don't know, he didn't say exactly what it was, but he says, I'm going to take them through some bad times. Now, what do you think they're going to do when they go through bad times? They're going to pray. They're going to pray. In His great love, God saved the one-third from being cut off with the two-thirds who died. And then as part of His love for them, He puts them in a fire to be tested and refined. By the way, that is normal Christianity. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Don't be surprised. Why? This is normal. He's going to test you. He's going to take you through things. Don't be surprised by that. But what is the test all about, right? What is it that God wants to see change? I will test them as gold is tested so that they will call upon my name and I will answer them. That's all he says. By the way, he doesn't talk about their sex lives. doesn't talk about their money lives. doesn't talk about their power struggles. He doesn't talk about anything else in their life. He said, I'm not testing them to get rid of their sexual impurity. I'm not testing them to get rid of their love of money. I'm, not, I'm testing them so that they will call on me. I'm taking them through this so they'll call on me. He said, I'll, worry, I'll deal with all that other stuff. I'm testing them so they will get on their knees and look to me. Put me first and foremost. Realize that in their life, I'm the source of their happiness. I'm the source of their joy. I'm the source of their contentment. I need to be first. They'll realize that when I test them. So God puts his people through the fire to awaken prayer. Now, by the way, I don't think he necessarily wants to do that. Do you? I mean, I think he would love it 
if we would just, in the good times, just pray, right? But he loves us too much. In fact, the Bible says somewhere that every child he loves, he, he chastises, he disciplines. He would love it if we would just, just in the good times, just pray. But I'm, I don't know what it is about us. Do y'all? Y'all got it figured out? I don't know what it is about. In the good times, we just do not call upon him the way we do in the bad times. In the end, see what he wants. This is what he wants. Look at the ninth verse. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, he's my God. That's what he's looking for. He wants to change. It goes back to what Ron said. It's all about relationship. He wants us to be more intimate, closer to him. And he knows that for whatever reason, that only happens when we go through trials and tribulations and we go to him in, in prayer. Almost 500 years ago, John Calvin commented on Zechariah 13.9. And what he said then is even more true today. This is what he said 500 years ago. It is therefore necessary that we should be subject from first to last to the scourges of God in order that we may from the heart call on him. For our hearts are enfeebled by prosperity so that we cannot make the effort to pray. 500 years ago, our hearts are enfeebled, made weak by prosperity. It's only in the hard times do we strengthen ourselves in prayer. Again, I know it's true for me. I wish it wasn't. But there's something about going through those things that drives us to Him. We'll close out with verses 25 to 27. Jesus said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now I want you to notice something there. Watch what he says. In that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Okay? For the Father himself loves you. Now this is really, really interesting right here. And I want you to make sure we get what this says right here. Scripture is very clear. Who is our advocate and our mediator? Jesus. Jesus. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Now... Very quickly, when you see those words, if you picture it in your mind, what do you see Jesus doing as our mediator, as our advocate? What do you see him doing? Huh? Okay, he's talking to the Father. In what way? He's translating what we're trying to say into what needs to be said. Okay. So, so if you're not... Now, I want you to be really careful here. If we're not very careful... We'll see ourselves as not being able to talk to the Father. That somehow Jesus is in the middle and everything goes through Him to the Father. Everybody with me? In fact, let's go back. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's saying I don't have to talk to the Father on your behalf. Why? Because the Father Himself loves you. In other words, you can talk to Him directly. You don't have to go through me. Everybody see that? So when it says He's our advocate or He's our mediator, in some sense, see, He's our advocate and our mediator just because He's there. 
In other words, He finished the work on the cross. We're Christians, right? And His presence there in heaven with the Father is a constant reminder to the Father of, of what's been already been done. But it's not as though Jesus has to go in every time we sin and say, Gee, God, don't kill Him. Father, don't kill Him. He's mine. Is everybody with me? He, he, Jesus wanted to make sure we understood this is not that type of mediator. It's not that the Father is some kind of kind of rude and arrogant and, 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 and judgeful being. And I've got to constantly run in there and appease His anger. Everybody, be careful you don't go down that road. Because that's what Jesus wants to dispose us of. I don't have to talk to the Father on your behalf. Right? You, you can do that. Everybody with me? Um, so there is a sense in which Jesus does augment and complete our prayers, taking them upon His heart and going in His high priestly role um, before the Father. Look at Hebrews 9.24. Christ has not entered the holy, of place, the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but He's entered into heaven to itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So He's in the presence of God as a reminder that the sin debt has been paid. Everybody see that? Okay? But be very careful you don't take that the wrong way. Make sure you don't see this as Christ being this merciful being and the Father somehow constantly needing to be appeased as if He wasn't inclined to give us aid. That's exactly what Jesus does not want us to think. Listen again to what He says. Okay, In that day you'll ask in My name and I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father Himself loves you because you love Me and you believed in Me. The Father loves you. Okay? You don't have to, he doesn't have to be appeased, right? And those re words reveal the perfect access to the Father's heart which Christ has secured for you and me. Real quickly, remember during the lifetime of Jesus, the holy temple in Jerusalem was the center of religious life, right? The temple was the place where the animal sacrifices were carried out. Worship according to the law of Moses was followed faithfully. And Scripture tells us that in that temple, in front of the Holy of Holies, was this veil, Right? Um, and it was the place where God's presence dwelt. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, the priests went in there how many times a year? Do we know? Once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they literally would tie a bell, right, to his ankle. So if the bell, they tied a rope to him with a bell on it. And if the bell ever quit moving, they pulled the rope out. It means he was dead. I mean, one guy went in there. Nobody could go in. And in other words, the idea was nobody entered the presence of God, right? Okay? Um, the veil symbolized the separation of men from God because of their sin. Only the high priest was permitted to pass beyond the veil once each year uh, to go in and make atonement. By the way, Solomon's temple was about 30 cubits high. Uh, Herod had increased the height to 40 cubits when he rebuilt the temple. That's according to Josephus. We don't know exactly how high that veil was, but it's safe to assume it was about 60 feet, about six stories. Not only that, Josephus tells us it was four inches thick, that if you tied horses to it, you couldn't pull it apart. Sixty feet high, four inches thick. And that makes it even more amazing uh, what Matthew says, uh, Matthew 27. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. The tearing of the veil at the moment that Jesus died symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, was a sufficient atonement for sins. Now, the way into God's presence was open for all time to anybody. Hebrews 10, 
And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Ephesians 2 says this, For through him we, both Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit. To who? To the Father. To his presence. See, the whole ministry of Christ is to bring men to the Father and let them know it. There's no need that Christ should make special prayer to the Father as though He were merciful and the Father needed to be appeased toward those for whom He had, get, he had prepared so great a salvation. His, his presence in the apparent, or His appearance in the presence of God for us is the perpetual sign of the completeness of His sacrifice. Yes, He is our advocate. advocate. Yes, He's our mediator. But not for the purpose of getting an unwilling Father to listen. Make sure you understand that, right? The work is done. The intercession is ongoing, but it's complete. We are reconciled with the Father, and He loves us. Okay? Um, close out here. Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're talking plain and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus, one more time, he's going to let them know. Jesus said, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed has come, when you're going to be scattered each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. In the world, you're going to have trouble. In the world, circumstances are going to change. In me, in me, you find peace, joy, fulfillment contentment, all those things. In the world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Real quick, I know I keep saying this. I, don't, I, didn't, remember, I didn't remember this being this long. Um, in, the, in the Greek language, the past tense is often used to express a future inevitability. When somebody in the Greek wanted to say something that was so positive it couldn't be changed, they would always speak it like it had already been done. In other words, it has happened versus it will happen. For example, Ephesians 2.6. Look what Paul says. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See what he says? Have we been, have we been raised and seated? He says it's a done deal. It's so inevitable that they speak like it's already happened. That's what they would do in the Greek. In other words, it's so secure, it can be spoken of as already done. That's what Jesus is doing here. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, right? It's coming. But watch what he says. But take heart. He doesn't say, I will overcome the world. He says, I've done it. It's, it's done. It's, it's already happened. That's how secure it is. In anticipation, in anticipation, he secures his victory before the fact by saying, I've already done it. Uh, in the end, his words return to the same thing. I'm leaving, but it's going to be okay. Yes, you will have trouble. Yes, it will hurt for a while. You're not alone. We love you. The Father and I are with you. We'll never leave you. Let these things that I've said to you bring you peace. Not a peace based on circumstances, but a peace based on who I am and what I have done. And I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for this lesson. We thank you for John chapter 16. Uh, Lord, we uh, pray for Chuck today as he preaches. We 